Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want, we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. They need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry, and then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way, and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church, exactly. knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Good morning. You guys are filling up the seats. This is great. We're out of room. Well, I have an announcement to make. Um, And uh, we started our church almost four years ago in a bar, nightclub, got kicked out. And um, this beautiful sanctuary, this Seventh-day Adventist church, opened up their doors to us in in a crisis. And uh, it's been an amazing gift. We averaged last year an attendance of around 260 people. Um, and we've been averaging since we've been here around 380. So we've grown tremendously being here. So that's amazing. Yeah. We've seen dozens of baptisms in this place. Um, yeah. Who got baptized? Let's give it up. Baptisms. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but th- because of some things, um, the church is obviously not a building. Do we know this? Church is not um, an institution. The church is not uh, a website. Or, or any of those things. It's us. It is us as the confessing followers of the resurrected Jesus Christ Messiah gathering together in his name where we pursue discipleship and transformation. That's, this is how the church exists. And um, it exists without buildings. And so we um, are unfortunately not going to extend our stay here anymore. So starting uh, September 1st, we are moving. So here's the announcement. Um, Franklin Middle School is a school that we're, we're very familiar with. We're giving them backpacks. It's two and a half, three blocks away from here. And uh, we are going to be moving our gatherings to Franklin Middle School. So if you just go Cerritos and go up to 6th and 7th, we're going there. Now, here's the deal. Uh, last time we moved, God did an amazing thing. We were surprised. We didn't know what to expect, but God did some amazing things. More, more leaders showed up, more people got involved, and a lot, a lot of people came to faith because of it. They came to Jesus because of it. Um, and I'm assuming that's what's going to happen. Um, this is not something that we're, we're seeing as a misfortune. Uh, we have only three kids' rooms. This new place opens up the space for six classrooms. 
It gives us a gymnasium for the youth. It gives us a, a, a theater with seats like similar to this, but wood seats. So it's going to be a little less comfortable for those of you that have found this to be convenient. Um, wait till I preach the message on the cross today. It's a little inconvenient, just so you know. Um, so. Uh, we are going to uh, be moving to a, uh, a theater that sits 450 people versus 360. So we have room to grow is what I'm saying. We have more parking, more children's space, more room to grow, and we're paying less rent. So can we just say amen? Now, on a personal side, it was the last Sunday of my sabbatical where I got the phone call. Of, hey, we're, we're going to have to find a new place. And last January, seven months ago, I got a similar phone call saying you can't meet this Sunday at the at the club. So um, luckily, I have experience now in receiving these phone calls. And I have become a man of great faith. And, and what I mean is God will always provide. God will always provide. And it was a miracle. This is an absolute miracle that we're getting in. The principal goes to Long Beach Christian Fellowship. They have a a heart to reach that city. I asked the principal, hey, what do you need? And she said, you know what we need? We need men and women to come around these kids because they don't have parents. 98% of the kids are on the free lunch program. We are going to bless the heck, pardon my French, out of that school. Amen? So here's what I need from you. I need... uh, as I preach this message on unity and community, um, looking not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, we're going to be moving. So we have uh, three more weekends this weekend, next weekend and the following weekend. Next weekend, my friend Suresh from India is speaking here. If you haven't heard him preach, well, it's going to get hot real fast. So it's um, he leads a huge ministry in um, South East India. I mean, thousands and thousands of people are impacted. I think they've planted thousands of churches. Um, Bible study. I think they plant 350 churches a year, um, orphans, widows, uh, shelters. It's absolutely amazing. He's got an amazing testimony, but he's just a great gift to us. But here's what I need from you. I need you guys to step in. Uh, this isn't about you attending, um, at the garden. We, if you come to, to faith here, we're going to put you to work. And uh, that's what it means to be the body is that we don't just show up and, and, and we have to fight the consumerism inside of us that just wants to sit comfortably in these beautiful blue chairs. We're not going to have them very long. <laughs> so and before uh, we just need some setup and teardown. So August 25th, we need people to help us move our stuff from this place to the, the other place. We're going to need people helping us with parking and kids and all the hospitality. We're going to have coffee in the theater. Amen. <laughs> So all my caffeinated brothers and sisters said, amen. And so I want you to sign up. If you're not on our e-bulletin list, there's an e-bulletin sign up here. And there's a help us with the transition here with some boxes to check. We're going to have ushers come around and literally go back and forth as they come by. So I'm going to start with you. Sorry, you're going to have to pick that one up real quick. And then I'm going to pass this over here. Are you guys with me on this? Are you ready to move? All right, good. All right. So I'm going to start here and we can just work it away this way. We'll figure it out. Usually it gets stuck right around here and then it doesn't go up past then. So please let it go past the fifth row. Okay. so before I pray, um, I'm obviously energized. I've been up really early today. I'm preaching at Long Beach Christian Fellowship today and here. So I have a 9, 10 and 11 o'clock service that I'm doing. And, and it is if you don't know Long Beach Christian Fellowship, they're our sister church. They we go there for our third Wednesday. They've given to us financially every single year. We've done our empowered conferences there. I'm really close friends with their pastor. My brother's their worship leader. So we are really like brother churches, I suppose, and super connected. Um, and I was given an opportunity to preach. So I'm, I'm over there as well. But the message I gave them is this message that I want to begin with you. So let's begin with a word of prayer. So I can calm myself down and you guys can grab your Bibles and sign up to set up and tear down with me. Jesus, we uh, declare you as God. We declare you as the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, creator of the universe, Lord. And so much of life, so much of our culture points to other gods, points to us as a center of the universe. And we just want to say, despite how we live this week, despite what we read, what we watched, what we've done, we come just confessing you as Lord. Such a provocative phrase, Jesus is Lord. And Lord, we want to center our souls around you now. We want to um, find ourselves in your presence. Um, We know you're present everywhere, but we just ask that your presence would be with us. Your presence would be here as we gather in your name. I pray for my brothers and sisters that need 
to be reminded of the truth that they are loved, they are accepted, um, that you would touch their hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters struggling in marriage and they just need to find a comforting word for their marriage. I pray that you would give it to them, Lord. For those that are feeling isolated and alone, that you'd bring community around them. pray that we'd experience your family of God here. And Lord, those of us that are full of joy and just blessed from this week, I pray that we would be contagious and that you would impact us in your name. Amen. Okay, Bible, Philippians chapter 2. If you're new with us, there are a lot of people. Maybe you're just back from vacation or you are visiting. We have been in a series. We're going to end it next week called Becoming Fully Alive. We're looking at how our view of God shapes the world we live in. And if you've heard me say this, I'm saying it time and time again. I want to kind of cap our series today really with this text. But our view of God shapes the world we live in. And I, I have been sharing this, these stories with you over the last few, few months about friends that I've had and conversations that I've had of, you know, I have an atheist friend that doesn't believe in God and believes that we're products of randomness and chance. And, and you sh- his life is a direct result of that. It is all about him. It is all about um, the money, the wealth, the women. It is about his appetite and his cravings in the day. And he builds his empire around that reality. And then I have a lot of Christian friends that have been uh, kind of nurtured into a, a, a understanding of God that is so far from the Christian God. It's, it's just as bad as an atheist. What do I mean by that? I mean, I have friends that think they have to earn salvation. That their view of God is that in order to receive favor and grace and love, I have to prove my worth to him. And that is just as foreign of a God of, uh, to the New Testament as an atheist that doesn't believe in a God. Because that's not what scripture reveals. If you read the scriptures, it reveals a God who does everything he possibly can to show his love for us. Who doesn't, it's not man in search of God, it's God in search of man. Time and time again from Genesis 3 to Revelation. From Genesis 1 to Revelation, there's a story of God's overwhelming love for creation and his hope to be in right relationship with it. And so I have friends that have these horrible perspectives of God's and they're leaders in this church. There are there there are leaders in other churches. They attend churches and there are these perspectives that I would just simply say are idols of a Christian God. You've trans um, transferred maybe broken relationships here on earth to your heavenly God. Your heavenly father, like some of you have. And I, I keep beating this one over and over again because it's one that I've struggled with. But the idea that God is a, a disapproving father. And that your life, if you look at your relationships, it's all about seeking people's approval. If you look at if you come into the Christian faith and you look at the way um, God, uh, the way you operate in the church world, it's that you have to you have to fulfill these religious duties out of religion, not grace and love out of law. Not grace. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are we on the same page? So what we've done or what I've attempted to do and Bill's done a great job at is uh, try to articulate this, the, who God is and what it means to know the God of Scripture and what that does to you as a person, how to love yourself. And then ultimately what that relationship, that ongoing loving relationship with this beautiful God does for you and others. Because Jesus summarized all of the commandments of the Old Testament, the 613 commandments when asked, what is the greatest? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we've been looking at. That's the framework for this talk. This morning, I want to suggest this. We're talking about becoming fully alive. How do you really live in an age of self-help? Where literally the same amount of money that's spent in Hollywood is is spent on self-help. I think it's $10 billion, according to Time magazine, um, The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, There's a billion-dollar industry for those that are self-help top speakers. And so in an age of self-help, how do we become fully alive? What does Scripture teach? And what I want to suggest today is this, that Jesus' death is a model for life. That Jesus' death is the ultimate revelation for how to live. You with me? Quiet. It got really quiet. Dan, go back to talking about backpacks. Now, we're going to talk about the cross. So if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 2. Let me say a few more things, and then this might help as an intro as well. As we talk about the church and unity and loving one another, I love... The message that Jesus teaches. You see, Jesus comes to the scene. 
2,000 years ago, and, he, and we, you've heard me talk about this. He, he proclaims and demonstrates an alternate reality, the reality that God's way of life, his reign is available for all. And it's pushing back against all other realities and kingdoms, philosophies and ways of life that you've experienced. And he, and he not only preaches this and proclaims it and embodies this message, he demonstrates it. He goes around and heals the sick, uh, heals the blind, casts out demons, sets free those who are oppressed spiritually, those who are oppressed by demons, those that are oppressed by injustice. He goes around and he says, hey, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The greatest among you will be the least and servant of all. And he has this profound message. And it is a beautiful gospel message. It is a liberating message. And I love this message. I love this Jesus. But most of the Jesus I, I hear preached don't talk about that Jesus. And I, and I love when people experience that Jesus. You know, the, those people that encountered the gospel, that didn't just grow up in the church, but lived a life in the past or experienced life outside of this moral place that we call the church. And they literally are confronted by this liberating power called the gospel of Christ. And they accept it and they, they find freedom. They're liberated from sins. They're liberated from past uh, thoughts and behaviors and relationships and they experience this beautiful message and recognize that in this message jesus doesn't end it by saying okay it's here now go about your business he says no come and be a participant go and do the stuff go and preach the gospel cast out demons heal the sick pray for one another love sacrifice your lives for one do the stuff that i've been doing that's the message that we're about and I love that message. And I love when people experience that. But you know what happens after that when they experience something like this? You know what happens when people come to this liberating conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah and they're set free? You know what tends to happen? They go to church and everything changes. Seriously. Now, can we wake up a little bit? Um, I was getting shouts at the 9 a.m. I mean, it was awesome. And I don't, I don't want to compare you to my brother, my brothers over at, you know, LBCF, but I am. Um, so you, have you ever experienced, I mean, I really believe in ministry. Ministry would be so much easier if there were no people. Like, honestly, that like, community is hard. We get in the church and we experience this Jesus. We read about this Jesus and our churches don't look anything like it. We're gossiping, we're complaining, we're, we're literally leaving one church to go to another because we don't like their worship style or we don't like the coffee that they don't serve or whatever it is that we have a preference of or, you know, whatever, it can go on and on and on. The list really does go on. We, we have these experiences where we bring this, this, this self-focus into our community. You know what, the best illustration for me for what a church is like as a pastor, and forgive me because I love you guys. But I've experienced over time that people experience church differently than what maybe the Gospels paint or the, the story of the New Testament paint. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are we, you people, some of us have experienced, it's like having roommates. It really is like having roommates. Uh, I was in, I went to uh, Vanguard University and um, I had seven roommates in a four bedroom house on the beach. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, it was, you live, to check the surf report, you just looked outside. Oh, it's good. Let's go. It was an amazing time. But what I realized with roommates is that there are some people that have a certain mindset or perspective or a certain way of thinking and um, about things generally, general things, which I'll talk about. And then there are people that don't have that mindset at all. So, for example, just to, like I grew up in a Christian home. That said, hey, if you buy milk, it's your milk. And if somebody wants to use the milk for cereal, they have to ask and you can share. But you don't just assume that because it's in the fridge with seven other guys that you can just use the milk that you didn't buy. Does, or, 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 okay, maybe that doesn't help. Have you ever had a half-eaten Chipotle burrito? Have you ever had a half-eaten Chipotle burrito in the fridge, wrapped up, and you just you're, you came home late after work, knowing that you're going to have that burrito, you don't have to spend more money because you're a broke college student, and sure enough, there's an IOU in the fridge. That's just not cool. That's not Christian at all. 
that's a totally different paradigm worldview mindset. <clears throat> or like, for, like I grew up thinking like, hey, uh, the, the bedroom has a closet in it. The living room does not consist of a closet. Well, some people believe that their, clo- their closet is the living room and they can leave their dirty clothes wherever they have and their stacks of shoes by the door. Do you know those types of people? Or the same type of people that, you know, um, they, they do the dishes when the, there are no more dishes to do. There's piled up in the, in the sink and they just leave it for everyone else. to. Or they, they finish the toilet paper roll and they don't tell anyone else in the house and it's early in the morning and nobody's home and you don't know what to do because there's no paper to be found. Not that that's happened to me or anything like that, but you get what I'm talking about. It's like church. Church is like living with roommates. One day you're going to bump into somebody who has a completely different perspective than you. That doesn't see the world you've seen, uh, the way you've seen the world. And so community is hard. And it's not hard just because we have different perspectives. It's hard because of this. We are being groomed in a narcissistic culture. We are being, uh, there's a study that shows that two, two thirds of college students in the millennial generation are being diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And I keep beating this drum, but we live in a me, I generation. Everything is built around the individual. You have been taught to worship yourself. The reason community is hard is because you have been taught to worship yourself. You've been taught to put you at the center of your universe and it's your preferences. It's your coffee. It's your 401k. We've talked about all of these things. It's all about you. And so every, everything that you see in advertisement, every time you, you pass a, a flyer or a, I'm sorry, a billboard or, or you turn on the TV, they're selling you a product. You're swimming in a culture of narcissism and we don't even know any better. And what happens is, is we bring all of that into the church and then we treat each other like it's like we're the church is supposed to be Apple or Google or some mall where you get what you want or a buffet and you get what you want out of it. And so the church has become a, an epicenter for narcissism. Are, are we OK with this? I mean, we're not OK with it, but are, are you OK with me saying this? So part of the reason that we struggle is that we're focused on ourselves. And so we, the first words we learn are mine and no. And we go to kindergarten and they teach us how to what? How to share with one another. For those of you that have kids, how many times are you saying you have to share? We live in a culture that is, is we're swimming in a culture. So Paul addresses this. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to review last week's message and then go into this, this new week. So um, Paul is writing in Philippians and he's, he's, I think what Paul's going after is remember that he's writing to this church that he, he planted maybe 14 years earlier and he's all the way in Rome and, and the Philippian church is all the way in, in what would be modern um, Greece and uh, Eastern part of Greece. And Paul's writing the church to remind them of what life is really about, what it means to be a community, what it means in the midst of all this, all these different perspectives and diverse um, uh, ethnicities and languages. And some of you are wealthy, some of you are poor. What does it mean to be the body? And so he says, first of all, Jesus is the key to life and you have to live for Jesus. And then last week we recognized that Paul is going to argue for unity because unity without unity The fabric of our witness is threatened. Without us being one, the very nature of our witness is disintegrated. And so he says this, let's just read this again. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion that make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So Paul will say, as a church now, here's what you're going to do. He's, he's arguing from not just an intellectual perspective, but an emotional perspective. He's, he's wanting to really come bring this message home to the church that he loves. He loves the Philippian church. And he's like, guys, if you've ever experienced encouragement from Christ, we talked about this last week, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any sense of caring for somebody at the depths of your being, tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being, as, as a church, being one-minded, one heart, one soul, 
one spirit. Be one. And now remember, Paul's writing to a diverse crowd, much like ours. Some of you drove from West L.A. Some of you drove, um, live next door and you walked here. Some of you live in Seal. And Paul is saying to us, hey, despite all the diversity and the complexity, guys, we have to be one. You have to be one. This is, this is about witness. This is about really living for Jesus as a church. Because if you don't, it threatens your witness. You with me? So I taught that message yesterday, last week. Um, as far as uh, looking, uh, not uh, the, the whole the verse first, excuse me, the first four verses. And he says, so the transition in order to be one, this is what we have to do. Remember, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And what's the Greek word for nothing? Do you remember what it literally translates to? Nothing. That's good. You guys remembered. Some of you are good. And um, and do but rather value others above yourselves. And not look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. So he says that, and then he, then he continues on with this text. And I want to focus our time on verse 5 through 11. It says this, in your relationships with one another. So pause for a moment. For those of you that are in community groups, in your relationships with those in your community groups, in your relationships with your families, with your, your neighbors, in your relationships here as you meet and greet for four minutes, in, your, in, the, in the relationships that you have, those friends that you text on Saturday night, the friends that you hang out with on Sunday night, uh, it, with your colleagues, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then Paul breaks up this, um, his thought and he, he inserts a poem or a hymn, which would have been maybe even a first century creed that he's borrowing to articulate this mind mindset of Christ. It says this, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have Paul takes this, this hymn and he begins to um, set this, this hymn as, as something that uh, the early Christians, we would have been reading this in our homes. This, this, this poem would have been read in our homes. And Paul is not interested in giving you this theology, although every single word he chooses here is very intentional and there's meaning behind it but he's less concerned about a philosophical belief system and he's more concerned about you actually living this out with each other this isn't about some philosophical system of belief and i want to really as i teach this this is about becoming practical in our way in our love for others and so paul says in this poem and he borrows, he says, hey, have this relationship uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ, who being the very essence or nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Now, the word used for his own advantage is the word uh, uh, um, before I forget it. Sorry. Um, harpogmas. Say harpogmas. Let's, uh, let's do it with some conviction. Harpogmas. And so harpagmos means to snatch or seize violently or, or to exploit or to grasp after. And so Paul is using this framework to talk about harpagmos because all of us know harpagmos. All of us understand harpagmos. And he's going to challenge us with another perspective in a second. But it literally says Christ did not see his divinity as something to be used for his own advantage. Okay, so in our culture and society, since we're little kids, we are taught harpogmas. We are taught in order to make it in life, you have to cheat, grab after, cut, be cutthroat. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a ladder you have to climb. You have to get ahead. It's all based on what you have to do. I have a friend who's, uh, who goes to our church, and he's like the number one salesman in his industry or in his, in his company. And he says, Darren, the only way I will lose a customer or client is if my competitor lies about what they're offering that client. So he says he's lost some clients and literally says the, the, his competitor will lie to his clients about the deal they're going to get 
and, and in order to get the deal, only to discover when, when my friend comes back to meet with his customer and ask why, that they were lying about the rates, they were charging them more in different fees. That's harpogmos. Do, you, do we know this? Do we know what it's like to cheat and steal and to grab after, to use power for ourselves? The poem is saying, look, guys, there's another way to be God. You see, in Roman and Greek culture, they had plenty of gods. Have you read any of the stories of Zeus or Hermes? Those gods are, it's like they, they don't have enough to conquer the, the, the humanity is, is spawned because of a conflict between different gods, according to those paradigms and worldviews, that the gods are angry and that you're, you're under their, their, their power and you don't know where you stand with those Greek or, or Roman gods. And so those gods are constantly in conflict. And it's like Zeus can't conquer enough gods. He can't conquer enough humans. He can't live without destruction. Zeus uses his power with harpagmos for his own advantage. And in a Gentile word, Paul says, look, our, the Christian God, he doesn't use power this way. Where you've learned in culture and society that life is this way, our God does it this way. Our God is different than your gods. So he doesn't use power to seize or take for his own advantage, but rather he uses it to empower. And let's read the next line. This is the, the next perspective I want, to ch- I want to invite you into. It says, rather, he made himself nothing or he emptied himself. The word is kenosis. Say kenosis. Harpagmos, to grasp. Kenosis, to empty oneself, to self-empty. So in a world where, where gods and people use their power to grab after and use for their own advantage. Our God, who's, who's uh, uh, in the very nature God, considers equality with God, doesn't use it for his own advantage. Rather, he, he empties himself by becoming uh, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. There is another way to be divine. What type of God do you worship? How do you interact with people? Do you use your resources and talents and your skill and your careers for your grasping after? Or do you let go of everything you have and empty yourself for the, for the others? Because that's the mindset. That's the attitude of Christ that had all the power in the world and he uses it. To empty himself. There's a parable, I think, that um, helps explain this. And I just want to read this parable. It's, a, it's an old Danish parable that sums up what our God is like. It says, um, there, there was once a mighty king. And one day this mighty king went out to survey his domain. And so he got into his chariot and he traveled from village to village, um, seeing what, what the extent of his rule and, and reign looked like. And in between villages, he's out in the open field and he sees the most beautiful country maiden, absolutely drop dead, gorgeous woman working in the field. And he can't stop thinking about her. He goes home to his castle and he just can't stop thinking about this beautiful woman. And he he's he fell in love with this woman. And he says, wait, I'm the king. I know what I can do. I can issue a royal decree and make her my wife. I have all the power in the world to do that. And so he, he goes to his advisors and tells them the plan. And his advisor, advisor goes, well, there's a, a, a problem with that plan. You see, you could. You have the power to issue a royal decree and she will be your wife. And it would be lovely because she'll have a robe and a, a crown and have a, a, a room full of maidens that will serve her. And that's absolutely true. But you will never know if you have her heart. You will never know if she actually wants to be with you. And so there's a problem with that plan. And so the, the mighty king looks defeated and walks home and, or goes to his room. And he, he's thinking about this. He can't get her out of his mind. And so he says, wait, what, what, went back to his advisor. Okay, what if I do this? What if I show up in my chariot to her house and I, I announce my arrival? I come as the king. I step out of my chariot and I go to her house and I say, I want to be your husband. Will you be my wife? And, and she'll, she'll hop in my chariot and we'll be carried away. And, and, and the advisor interrupts and says, oh, there's a, there's a problem with that plan. You see, um, the, you, you can go to her village and you have the power to do that. But, but remember, the, the first thing when she sees you is not going to be you. You see, first she will hear a loud trumpet. 
It will announce your arrival. And then literally the village will fill with dust because of the hundreds and hundreds of soldiers on horses that are going to accompany you as you enter into this village. And then the ground will be shaking as you enter into this village to receive this new wife. And, and then eventually she will be, uh, we will have to announce your presence. And, and so do you think after the, the loud trumpet and after the dust settles and after the ground is shakes as you enter into a town that with all your power and might that she will be in the right state of mind to fall in love with you. Walked away defeated. He didn't know what to do. And he lays awake at night thinking of what he can do. So he realizes there's only one option. As a king, he has to take off his robe. He has to take off his ring that declares him as the king. He has to take off his crown and put on clothes of a peasant and quietly leave the castle without an entourage. He has to take up residence in her village and try to woo her as an equal. The only hope is to empty himself of the things that make him king and approach her and woo her on level ground. The poem is saying this is what our God is like. He is a God that emptied himself to woo us in a great love story. And Paul says, you are to have this mindset with others. You are to have this mindset that Christ's example of of renouncing his divinity, of being humiliated on the cross, eventually is exalted by by God, is our example for life. Are you with me? Have this mindset is what it says. And, and the story continues or the poem continues and it, it shows what happens. It says that he, he was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. So what is obedience? So this is what happens. I want to make sure our theology is correct. I don't think God willed Jesus to die. But that God willed Jesus's obedience. And Jesus, what obedience is, is he did the right thing. And then he did the right thing. And after that, he did the right thing. And after that, he did the right thing. And obedience has consequences. And his consequences was death. And Paul is saying the mindset of Christ is he was, his, he was obedient to the Father's plan to the point of death. And then like a crescendo on a drum roll. We have this other line. It breaks the rhetorical flow. This poem is is disturbing. This poem is uh, offensive. It's horrific because it includes a cuss word. It, it, Paul drops an F-bomb in this poem, in this hymn. And it says, even death on a cross. We look at the cross as this fancy thing that will wear around our neck. It was a torture device. It was a curse word in the first century. It meant humiliation. It meant defeat. It was not a good term. You did not, did not want to be associated with the cross in any way. And Paul is saying that Christ was obedient to death. That's one thing. But Christ was completely humiliated on the cross and died the worst death possible. That's a whole other thing. And ultimately what he's saying is that Christ is my Mindset is obedience. And you guys, if you want to experience life, then you have to experience death of yourself. Paul's saying to us that the mind we are to have is a mind that will find itself in obedience to complete humiliation. Paul's not arguing in this particular passage, although he is a bit. He's not trying to emphasize an atonement theology. He's emphasizing how far Jesus will go for the interest of others. Our God woos us with the most sacrificial love you could ever imagine and dies on a cross so that he could be with us. Paul will use Jesus' death as a model for life. So if it didn't mean salvation and redemption, Paul is using this curse word as a way to rethink about life as a whole. He's using the F-bomb of the cross in this passage to mean something that it didn't mean during his time. It didn't mean what it means. It's not a symbol for salvation at this point in time. 
but rather it becomes the, the perfect meaning for sacrificial love. He's redefining this word. So it does mean salvation. So it will become redemption. So it does mean that the cross isn't the final word. The exaltation of Jesus. His name is the name above all other names. It will mean that. But guys, the cross for us becomes a way of life. And Jesus' model of obedience to death becomes a way of life. And what, so if you look at other uh, scriptures, let's, like, first, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul will use this as an example. You guys want to know how to live. Husbands, you want to know how to have a better wife? Or have a better, yeah, I'll teach you how to get a better wife. <laughs> Just five easy payments and, <clears throat> and you can have the bride of your dreams. Um, you want to know how to, um, you want to know. How to have a relationship with a woman that is wooing and nurturing and full of grace and peace and harmony. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. How do we live with one another? We die to ourselves and model Jesus' obedience on the cross. Hey, you guys want to know how to deal with your finances? Well, what type of God do you worship? What type of God do you worship? Second Corinthians says this as Paul is arguing for this church in Corinth to be generous. <clears throat> he says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through that, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. You want to talk about, oh, we want to talk about giving in our church. Well, the question isn't how much are you going to give? But what type of God do you worship? Is your God stingy or has he given everything for you? Let that be reflected in the way you handle your finances. Have the mindset of Christ who did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We are to have this mindset, the mindset of a servant, the mindset of someone that will give ourselves for the sake of others. Um, the word for mindset is phronesis. And it means attitude. And I think what Paul's doing in this text is he's trying to teach the church to think about life differently. He's trying to teach the church to live in a way that's different than the world says it has to be. There are many ways to be gods, apparently. But the Christian God says, I'm going to do it this way. Jesus does it this way. There are many ways that we can use our power, our talents, our resources, our intellect, our, our relational capital. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying, well, the world says this, but I want you to think about it this way. And oh, what, what is that practically? Well, uh, as you think about starting your new career, as you think about starting a, a business venture or, 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 or whatever it is you're doing, thinking about your business, you're thinking about your relationships, starting, um, you're going back to school as you think about being a teacher. Well, when you go into those places, you know, the world's like this, have the mindset that lays themselves down for others. Have, have a, a, a perspective of the world that, that thinks of other people's interests and values others above yourselves. As you think of a world that says you can get as much as you want, as you think of a world that says more is better, as you think of a world that says just give 10% and the re let the rest be figured out, go buy the house on the, the other side of the lot that's bigger and has more rooms, as you think of that world, that's not bad, but be obedient to a mindset that Jesus modeled. This is how we're to be as a church. This is how we are to live with one another. So in other words, when Paul, as he writes us behind, behind bars, he thinks about his imprisonment in a new way. As you think about maybe there are experiences where you are feeling like you're hanging on a cross. There's a new way to think about that cross. You could say that maybe... You yourself have, have experienced hatred from people and community, broken relationships. You've experienced the gossip that destroys community. You've experienced circumstances that you feel like you've been taken advantage of. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you just think life has been so unfair. You have a choice. You can either be full of bitterness and resentment and live in despair, or you can assume that there's another way to live. And there's another story being told. That's what Jesus offers us. And that's what Paul invites us to be as the church. So how do I, how do we close? I want to, I want to invite you to become fully alive. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes it very clear. Verse 38, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If you really want to live, then you're going to have to die. Only in your death to self will you ever experience the resurrection life. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to wait on you for a moment. We know that this challenges much of our perspective of self. And that we think there's no way on earth we can do this. And it's true. We can't. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to have this mindset? Holy Spirit, would you allow us to look into ourselves now and repent? Repent from our idol worship. From our our lack of interest in others. From a perspective that is saturated in a culture of narcissism. God, we just repent of that and we ask you, God, give us a new mind. Allow us to see people the way you see people. Allow us to see ourselves the way you, you see us, God. Allow us to see you the way you really are. As the mighty king who leaves everything to woo us to himself. We pray now that you would lead us in our response. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Thank you.